What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Owens Recovery Science Podcast. I would like to say a special thank you if you are, in fact, listening to this podcast on Memorial Day, because that means you're kind of along for the ride with us a little bit. Um, As you may have gathered, today's podcast is going to be a departure from our usual discussion around BFR exercise and rehabilitation. Today's podcast, we're going to focus largely upon our service members that have lost their lives in combat in service for our country, because in the end, that is what Memorial Day is all about. And if you didn't know that, um, disappointingly, you're in good company. About 28% of the U.S. population knows what Memorial Day is truly about. And I have to be completely honest with you. I was in the camp of I really didn't know as recently as two years ago. And in some ways, the idea for this podcast comes out of um, a rather ignorant text that I sent to Johnny and Ben and Zach. And, and that text was basically running an idea by them for a Memorial Day social media post that I had. Um, and if I'm being even more honest, you know, I think I was probably on my couch drinking coffee on Memorial Day, scrolling Instagram and seeing all these posts and going, shoot, man, I don't, I don't have anything that I was planning to do for Memorial Day on social media and I, I probably should. And so I texted the guys and I and I th- I had a rather ill-conceived post put together and Zach chimed in pretty quick and and he let me know in a nice way that I kind of had my head up my rear a little bit that I didn't really know what Memorial Day was about and and I was in the end rather embarrassed um not because Zach made me feel bad, but because I just felt like I should have known. I had two grandfathers that served in World War II. I have an uncle that was a Marine helicopter pilot. I felt like I should have known the difference between Veterans Day and Memorial Day. But but if you don't know the difference, um, you're in good company. A, a lot of people don't know the difference. And the difference is very simple. Veterans Day is intended to be all-encompassing for all veterans. If you were an enlisted service member, You're a veteran, and we want to thank you for your service. But Memorial Day is more about honoring those servicemen and women who have died in combat, serving our country, defending our freedoms. And so we want this podcast to be focused on that. And so we want to try to tell stories about service members that you probably don't know, and we want to ask you to listen to them because I don't care if you were the most heroic person ever in combat or you just died by happenstance. I think your story deserves to be heard because someone's story is so much more than how they died. That is by no means the impact of someone, how they died in combat, whether it be heroic or not. And so I I want this to be a, I think we, I I say I, forgive me, we 
want this to be a podcast where we bring light to those stories as, as best we can. And so if you know someone um, or have a family member or a friend and you know a story that you'd like us to tell or maybe we have you on and you tell it, um, the options are going to be open uh, every year for, for this. And so we want to try to get those stories out there as, as best we can. And those stories have all kind of fingers that, that branch into all parts of life. And so we want to address those as well. And we'll do some of that today and we'll do some of that in the future. Uh, I, I want to kick us off by telling you a little bit of a history of Memorial Day. And so I'm going to read something that that I've put together. And at the end of that, we're going to observe uh, a moment of silence, that, which will, if you started this at the exact right time that we put out there, it'll be at 3 p.m. Eastern. Um, technically, the observance of a moment of silence within the U.S. is supposed to be 3 p.m. local, but given that 3 p.m. Eastern would be the earliest time you could observe it within the U.S., we've, we've just kind of chosen that time. And if you're on the West Coast like me, you can, you can just kind of do the math a little bit. Um, but but if, if you're doing, if you're along with us for the ride, um, I'd like to say an extra special thank you to you for, for paying that much attention to what we're doing um, because, you know, at least some thought kind of went into, went into this. And so thank you. Thank you for that. Um, I personally appreciate it. And I know, I know we as a, as a company appreciate it as well. This is the Owens Recovery Science Podcast, hosted by physical therapist Johnny Owens. All right, let's do Memorial Day. Memorial Day was originally called Decoration Day. It's a day of remembrance for those that have died in service for the United States of America. It's, it's difficult to prove the origins of the day as there are more than two dozen towns and cities who lay claim as the birthplace. But in May of 1966, President Lyndon Johnson stepped in and he officially declared Waterloo, uh, Waterloo, New York, as the birthplace of Memorial Day. But no matter the origins of, of the day and, and where it officially started, Memorial Day is born out of a desire to honor the dead from the Civil War. The Civil War ended in, in 1865, so this goes back a very, very long time. On, on the 5th of May in 1868, so three years after the Civil War had ended, General John Logan issued an order called General Order Number 11. Um, General, General John Logan was the commander of the Grand Army of the Republic, and, and in this order he proclaimed that the 30th of May, 1868, is designated for the purpose of strewing with flowers or otherwise decorating the graves of comrades who died in defense of their country during the late rebellion, and whose bodies now lie in almost every city, village, and hamlet churchyard in the land. 
He continued in that order and said, Let us then, at the time appointed, gather around their sacred remains and garland the passionless mounds above them with the choicest flowers of springtime. Let us raise above them the dear old flag they saved from dishonor. Let us in this solemn presence renew our pledges to aid and assist those whom they have left among us as sacred charge upon a nation's gratitude, the soldiers and sailors, widow and orphan. Because the day wasn't the anniversary of any particular battle, the general called it the date of Decoration Day. On the first Decoration Day, 5,000 participants decorated the graves of 20,000 Union and Confederate soldiers buried at Arlington Cemetery, while General James Garfield made an historic speech. By the end of the 19th century, Memorial Day ceremonies were being held on May 30th, so they just picked that, that last day in, in, in May. And those were being held throughout the nation. State legislatures passed proclamations designating that day as Memorial Day, and the Army and Navy both adopted regulations for proper observance at their facilities. It wasn't really until after World War I that the day was expanded to honor those who have died in all American wars. Previously, it was just uh, intended to honor those who had died in the Civil War. But after World War I, um, Memorial Day began to honor those who had died in war, um, in any of the American wars. And so the genesis of this really seems somewhat unknown, but it could be in part to the fact that the Commonwealth of Nation member, some, member states, um, after World War I, de declared to memorialize the fallen from all countries that had fought in what was then known as the Great War and we now know as World War I. Remembrance Day, or Armistice Day, is held on November 11th, memorializing the end of hostilities on the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month. Now, this day is familiar in the United States because we know it as Veterans Day. Um, and in Great Britain, it's known as Remembrance Day. And so it seems as though perhaps the, the codifying, I don't know if codifying is the right word, but the declaration of this day uh, throughout the world as being a day to remember veterans um, seemed to kind of push the U.S. to more take Memorial Day as a day to honor those that actually died in combat. Now, it's a long-held tradition to wear red poppies on Memorial Day, and the roots of that practice are, are tied to a poem titled In Flanders Fields. This poem was written by Lieutenant Colonel John McRae, who was a physician in the Canadian Army. He penned this memoriam upon walking amongst the graves of the fallen soldiers from the Second Battle of and I'm, I'm going to mess this up, but I think it's Ypres in 1915. Ypres is spelled Y-P-R-E-S. It's in Belgium. I know that. I just I didn't Google how to pronounce it. So my apologies if I, if I butchered that. Um, Lieutenant Colonel McRae noted that while the poppies grew among the graves, they were very resilient flowers. The, the poppy is able to lay dormant for many years in the soil, only to reappear in great numbers, 
covering fields which had laid bare for many years previously. This held significance for Lieutenant McCray, as Lieutenant Colonel McCray, as he wrote of the heroes who appeared in great numbers to come to the aid of others against the oppression and tyranny during the Great War, and who would lie dormant until their call was heard again. Shortly after the publication of In Flanders Fields, the poem led to the use of the poppy to signify fallen soldiers across Europe and the United States. Just three years after its publication, Lieutenant Colonel McRae passed, and Moina, Mc, Moina Michael wrote a poem as tribute to McRae. The poem, together with Ms. Michael's promotion of the poppy as the official symbol for the remembrance of the fallen, created what is now an iconic symbol of history. Poppies, due to her enthusiasm, really became the symbol of the American Legion, and funds from the sale of poppies were and still are used to support the needs of disabled veterans. And so I'd like to read to you the, the poem by Moina Michael. It's called, We Shall Keep the Faith. O oh, you who sleep in Flanders' fields, sleep sweet to rise anew. We caught the torch you threw, and holding high we keep the faith with all who die. We cherish, too, the poppy red that grows on fields where valor led. It seems to signal to the skies that blood of heroes never dies but lends a luster to the red of the flower that blooms above the dead in Flanders Field. And now the torch in poppy red we wear in honor of our dead. Fear not that ye have died for naught. We'll teach the lesson that you wrought in Flanders Field. And so in many ways, it's kind of why we have this podcast, is we want to help be part of teaching that lesson on Memorial Day. In 1971, with the passage of the National Holiday Act, Memorial Day, though it is still often called Decoration Day, was declared a national holiday by an act of Congress. It was then also placed on the last Monday in May. To ensure that the sacrifices of America's fallen heroes are never forgotten, in December 2000, the U.S. Congress passed and the President signed into law the National Moment of Remembrance Act, creating the White House Commission on the National Moment of Remembrance. The Commission's charter is to encourage the people of the United States to give something back to their country, their country which provides them so much freedom and opportunity by encouraging and coordinating commemorations in the United States of Memorial Day and the National Moment of Remembrance. The National Moment of Remembrance encourages all Americans to pause wherever they are at 3 p.m. local time on Memorial Day for one minute of silence to remember and honor those who have died in service to this nation. As Moment of Remembrance founder Camela Laspada states, 
It is a way we can all help put the memorial back in Memorial Day. And so we would like to ask you at this time to observe a one-minute silence with us. Welcome back, everybody. I don't know. I, we always say welcome back. And um, I guess maybe it is welcome back. I don't know. People are coming to listen to this for some reason. Um, I, I would like to say just briefly, and I, I'm sure, Zach, you've kind of had this experience as well, but I, I've actually met people that listen to the podcast now. And um, what has been really awesome, it, while, while I feel kind of like it's a 15 minutes of fame sort of thing, but what has been great is people have really just been complimentary a lot of the time and has said how they they enjoy um, how we bullshit back and forth yeah. and give each other grief. <laughs> and I think you and I are kind of the chief two of that, um, yeah. of, of giving each other hell. Um, but but always it's in good fun. And, um, and sometimes somebody actually makes a mistake, like when you screwed up fourfold that one time. Fourfold, yeah. <laughs> Um, but today's a little different. We're not talking BFR. I know weird, strange, but, um, we're talking, this is more important, I think, than, than BFR. And, um, so we're doing our Memorial Day podcast. Zach, if you guys don't know, is a, I never know. It's like, you can't say former Marine because nobody's actually a former Marine. What's the correct thing to say? <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, what was in the Marine Corps? That's, that's the what, one thing there, there's in uh, the Marine Corps. <laughs> yeah. So that's the, uh, the, the Marine Corps has some interesting, uh, things I would say in general <laughs> now with, with knowing that I am a Marine, you can take this with a bit of bias and, and whatnot, yeah. but either way, uh, the Marine Corps prides itself in its history I would say we are the only branch that fully celebrates its birthday. Uh, it's basically, it, it is right around Veterans Day, but either way, if it wasn't, um, you know, it, that would be a holiday in the Marine Corps. It, it is a huge birthday celebration. Uh, Kyle, you would love it. It turns into a drunken fiasco. Yes, yes. Um, a lot of free booze is fl flowing uh and uh and and i would and i would say this that every single marine can tell you when the birth date of the marine corps is yeah uh, it's nobody's, it, it, it's nobody's just, missing that it's not that, like that is right that, you're not that, that's right in, in fact that's one of those things like when you take a test in boot camp that that is uh, on the test I've, I've, 
<laughs> so I, I love, uh, I love, there's all those little things, you know, where it's like, this is just always going to be on there, you know, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's not even something you have to prep for. You know by default that that is on the test. <laughs> you, you, you accidentally write the Marine Corps birthday instead of the date of the test. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, the other thing too is they'll say like, you know, the Marine Corps is older than the country itself and uh, <laughs> a, a, another you know, another just ironic little tidbit, you know, before we get into this, um, the Marine Corps is probably also unique in the sense that it was actually created in a bar in Philadelphia. Yes. Uh, I, I actually, Tavern. Uh, I actually so, knew that. I actually yeah. knew that. So I, I have a funny story that to me really kind of embodies um, kind of the general, I don't know if the right word is attitude that mar- Marines have about being in the Marine Corps, but my so as you know, my grandfather was a, was a Marine serving in World War II. Um, one of my grandfathers was. And then uh, one of my uncles was a Marine Corps helicopter pilot. And so he threw the, he flew the 53, that huge, mm-hmm. you know, that huge one. And I've actually seen those in the air. And it is intimidating to see one right. of those in the air and be, be kind of close because they're so they're so big. But my, my cousin, he tells the story of how um, when he was a kid, he was talking to his dad about being in the Marine Corps because his dad was still in the Marine Corps at the time. And um, he said to his dad, you know, dad, did you ever did you ever think about becoming a sniper? You know, because he my cousin, you know, is you're a kid, guns are kind of cool. And yeah, it's a, yeah. You hear about snipers, it's kind of cool. And he says his dad looked at him straight away and he goes, son, I was in the Marine Corps. We were all snipers. <laughs> <laughs> and to me, that just, you know, I hear so many little yeah. comments like that from old older marines yeah <laughs> if i can yeah that's seasoned the, uh, so marines if that's the say. uh that, that is another thing that that you will commonly hear from people every marine is a rifleman and that's another yeah. thing that they, they pride themselves on is you know um you know think things may have changed but when i was in it was basically once a year you had to qualify on the rifle range mm-hmm. uh with, with your m16 you know and that was just the one thing that the marine corps um you know really prided itself on was marksmanship um, yeah. and then that extends into the sniper community as well but yeah for sure it's uh yeah <laughs> definitely it's, it always makes me laugh so um so anyway Zach let's get into this a little bit you know you and I as I kind of intro we had had a couple different conversations um one around Memorial Day and kind of what it was and and I kind of I just kind of didn't know and so you were kind enough to enlighten me um and then also you know I think one of the things that you've been really it's been cool to see you do over the past maybe maybe like two or three years I feel like you've been doing this where you know you've been sharing kind of really on your Facebook profile because you can't really share anywhere else like this but sharing stories of of former service members um, that have died in service to our country. And in the end, that's what Memorial Day is all about. And, um, and I don't, I don't, you may remember, I don't remember what prompted it. We were talking off air, but we somehow kind of got to talking about how these stories should be told, you know, and we just don't, there's too many stories out there of people that have died in service to our country that we don't, we don't know the story. And, and some of them are not all that heroic, um, some of them are heroic, but regardless, I think, you know, if, if you died 
serving our country and keeping our freedoms, I, I feel like we should know your name and we should know your story. So, um, yeah. I don't remember how that's that conversation got going. Do you remember exactly kind of how it? Yeah, I, I, I don't remember. Um, I, I think, you know, things become like a, a blip on the radar almost when, um, you know, you, you hear someone getting the medal of honor and, and things like that. And then that, that kind of will create like a little bit of a headline or something, but then it just kind of goes away. Um, and, uh, and, a, and a lot of times, so for anyone who doesn't know, um, medal of honor, that award is earned, not given. That's a, a pretty big distinction with folks, folks aren't given the Medal of Honor. They they earned the Medal of Honor, and um, you know a lot of times that's years removed from when that act was performed that that caused them to earn the Medal of Honor. Um, so a lot of times it's just like I said, it's kind of a, a blip on the radar, and uh, you know nothing's really done with it. Um, and sometimes you know, one it's is not given or not earned necessarily i mean and i've heard stories of how in some ways it'd be a burden to guys because they become kind of this political figure um, right at times things are expected of them that maybe you know it's like man i just did this thing for my country and now you want all this other from yeah. me. you know this wasn't enough kind of thing yeah you right. get uh there there's definitely numerous reports um, of, of individuals who do an act that is very deserving, but yet, yeah. but yet what, what they're awarded or what they're given in response to that act is not really, it, it's kind of below what was actually the act that was performed. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, it can definitely be frustrating for, for guys because, um, you know, the, the situation that, um, that that was involved is is a lot of times a very um sentimental kind of a thing and they feel that what was done was very deserving but then what is given in response to that is right so well and we're going to tell you'll tell the story here in a little bit about a couple guys that we you know really and i would agree i feel are deserving of the medal of honor but but since they're gone you know who who do you give it to? You don't have someone to parade around and say, here's our medal of honor recipient, you know, cause these guys are, yeah. are, are gone. And so I, th I think maybe sometimes, and, and you correct me if I'm wrong, but it's not, I think it's not given posthumously. Is that, is that the correct term? Posthumously meaning Posthumous. essentially posthumously, Posthumous. you know, after this person has essentially, these people are, are gone. There's not an actual person that did this thing to, yeah. to pin this medal on um and 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 it should be it should be given posthumously yeah the other the other thing too is you know when you specifically are talking about the medal of honor there's a huge investigation that goes into that uh -huh. and so um yeah so they they will investigate that thing fully to make sure that you know what has been worked up so far 
is not fictitious or exaggerated. They, they want to make sure that basically yeah. the actions that were carried out were the actual actions that were carried out. Um, and so cool. and, I think that's really, I think that's neat, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And so in the, the one instance that we'll talk about here um, later on is the only witnesses that there was some video footage, but the only witnesses, the eyewitnesses were all Iraqis. And yeah. so from from a political standpoint, it becomes a bit of an issue if, if you're strictly relying on, you know, yeah. a, a foreign entity to kind of co corroborate the story. Uh, so right. that creates a bit of a challenge. Right. So you go, let's back up a little bit because we, we wouldn't want to get too far ahead of ourselves. Um, you went into the mil you went into the Marines like right mm -hmm. out of high school. Yeah. Yeah. So I was that, I was that kid uh, in high school that uh, had no desire to go to college. I was probably the most anti-college kid that you will find. Um, all I wanted to do uh, ever since I, I really Which makes me laugh right now because I know yeah. the wormholes you go down looking into it's, VEGF. It's, and it's so, so ironic. It's that the, uh, now, I, I always, I will like half jokingly tell the story too. Dude, when I was in high school, all I cared about was playing sports. And if I had grades good enough to play sports, eh, whatever, I was Done. good. Um, <laughs> in fact, uh, you know, a couple kind of funny stories uh, were when we would sign up in the spring for courses for the next school year, one of my electives was a study hall. And it wasn't so I could study. It was so I could get signed out and go hang out with the track coach. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and then my other elective would be an additional gym class. So <laughs> I, I definitely was not your, uh, your academic minded individual. You weren't um, on the debate team. No. Nah. And, uh, or anything. yeah. So, uh, and, uh, yeah. Um, and, and I, I remember too, you know, my, my senior year in high school, we were sitting around, I was, we were in math class and this is the spring. So everyone's like, uh, talking about their SAT scores. And my math teacher goes, uh, Dunkel, what would you get on the SATs? I said, what are the SATs? I said, Dude, I, said, I just take the ASVAP. That's all I need to do. I get a certain score on the ASVAP and I'm good. <laughs> so <laughs> that was the, uh, that, that was my mindset. Um, and um, yeah, man, I, I remember too, you know, we were uh, playing soccer as my senior year. Uh, the, the team was pretty decent for the area I grew up in. Um, and, you know, we finished within. I didn't know uh, you were a soccer player. So that, that... yeah, <laughs> we, we finished in like roughly the, the top eight in the state in the state of Pennsylvania. So we were playing this team in the state playoff from out around Pittsburgh. And uh, one of the dads on the team, on, on this team from Pittsburgh, uh, he, uh, he comes over to my coach and he goes, man, he goes, you know, that number five out there is probably the only kid that could play at a division one school. He goes, he's, he's probably the only kid that has the ability. And my, my coach goes, yeah, good luck. And he goes, <laughs> what do you mean? He goes, dude, that kid's going to the Marine Corps and you're not changing his mind. He goes, what? <laughs> he goes, yeah, yeah, the kid's going to the Marine Corps. He goes, what a waste. <laughs> and so, <laughs> you know, and so that was, that was, what a that, waste. that was, God. that was that man, dude. I, I literally, uh, yeah. Um, 
You what know, position and, did you play? I feel like you were uh, like a stopper or a sweeper guy. Yeah, yeah. So, so I initially, when I was younger, I played striker, and then, yeah. um, and and when I was older, I played defense. But then I would just like make these, um, I would make these runs. Like, so I would go from like the defensive end of the field and just take the ball and go down to to the other end of the field, you know. And yeah. like, these people would just be like these. They would be like blowing. They're like, what's this kid doing? Um, but, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. So that was, that was that, um, you know, but then, um, get, getting into kind of the military, uh, and, and where I am now, I, I will say, and I, I tell people this all the time with 100% confidence that, uh, it was the Marine Corps that got me where I am today. Um, yeah. and it was specifically scout sniper school. Um, you know, up until that time, whether I was lazy or I was, you know, dumb, whatever. I, I don't really know when I was in high school, like I said, I definitely wasn't motivated enough. I didn't care about academics enough to excel in that. Yeah. Um, but it was, it was when I went to scout sniper school and the, the challenges of, of scout sniper school uh, that, uh, you know, really I proved to myself that I was able to do whatever I wanted to do um, mm -hmm. as long as I put my mind to it. And so um, I, you know, it's, it's probably weird for, you know, people in academics or within the clinical um, setting of like, say, a physical therapy or anyone with a higher degree. A lot of times, you know, like physical therapists are really proud of um, the schools that they went to or the, the degree that they have, like a doctorate in physical therapy, for example. I will tell you this, my greatest accomplishment in life um, is graduating from scout sniper school. Um, mm -hmm. uh, I have, you know, no, no, no doubt in my mind that, you know, it, it was, it's, that was one of the greatest things that I'll ever accomplish in my life. Yeah, that's cool. I, I believe that I, well, we see you go down these wormholes and, yeah. and I've said to, I've literally, I've said to Johnny and Ben, you know, cause sometimes we are like marvel at it. Like, how does he even like, I don't understand all these lines and dots and arrows and crap. And Zach understands that crap. And I'm like, I've said, I'm like, I really feel like it's the sniper training, honestly. And we've never yeah. talked about that, but I've actually said that because I feel like you have to be so detailed, you know, with it, it's, it's all about the drift I, I, and I, 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 all I that. That it, stuff, it I feel is, like you that maybe that's where it, it came from. It so is, it is, the, it, it is the detail, um, you know, the, the detailed role of things that, uh, I, I think I, I don't know. I just, I definitely get caught up in the details, and, um, you know, and obviously in the military, it's a different thing, but you know, the details can save your life, yeah. Um, and, uh, and maybe translating that to what we do, I think the details are important because it may not be life-saving, but if, if I can connect the details, I can make sense of this. And if I can make sense with it in the context of this over here, maybe I can translate that and apply that over here if it makes sense to use that over here. Um, yeah. Um, so, but yeah, 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 yeah. Well, and I think, I think you do a good job of kind of keeping things in context within a clinical context when you start going. So many people get so detailed when they start looking at things that they forget, you know, they kind of forget right. the forest for the trees, if you will. And um, one thing that, that you're good at is getting into the weeds on this, but 
at the same time, really kind of keeping it in context. Um, yeah. I feel like sometimes I have to be the voice of reason, like a little bit, and I have to bring you down to earth <laughs> just a little. <laughs> You're like, whoa, whoa, Zach, hold on, man. Like, yeah. I got yeah, yeah, lost there, here. <laughs> there, there's, there's definitely those times where I'm like, you know, I'm like in my mind, I'm like, this makes perfect sense. And Kyle's like, well, that's a bit of a stretch. Yeah. yeah like, no, like, I, I don't know. We, we don't have that yet. And I'm like, yeah. Yeah, but we got this over here that says this, right. you know. Right. Yeah, yeah. But it's fun to get excited about that stuff, and I think you know, generally, I enjoy talking about it. So, um, yeah. Anyhow, that's that's us. There you go. So, yeah. So you join up, you sign on the dotted line. Do you sign, actually sign a dotted line when you sign up to join? The no, I think it was. I think it's a box. I, I think oh, it's the, like okay. it, it's a it's a it's a blank box. And uh, is, it, is it the signature like at the grocery store, man? You can get out of that still. <laughs> I, I bet you, I bet you nowadays it probably is. It's probably like all digital, like, hey, yeah. just sign, sign the iPad right here. Yeah. Uh, but uh, <laughs> yeah, no, when, when I went in, it was, uh, you know, it's such a, a stereotypical government document that um, it, it's a, you know, uh, a, uh, a, you know regular sheet of paper but then like they have a box yeah, it's it's then a big box and then from in there within that box is like all these like separate little boxes that explain like different things it's like an x uh-huh. that's yeah. you know marked okay. or whatever and then you get down to the very bottom and it's like signature um and so yeah and so you know going back to things i pretty much enlisted um as soon as i could uh, and yeah. in fact, you know, the recruiter, I had known the recruiter, you know, cause they would come to the school and stuff. Right. I don't even think this guy really tried to recruit me. Um, <laughs> he, he knew, uh, he knew that that's, I, you know, that's what I was doing. Yeah. Um, and it's, and so my, my main job that I wanted to do was become a reconnaissance Marine. Okay. And so that job, um, was, you know, similar to, um, like your, your special operations type job. That was kind of the Marine Corps special operations unit um, uh, that, that they had. And uh, since then, uh, right when I was getting out of the Marine Corps in 2006, they actually stood up MARSOC, which was Marine Special Operations Command, which they pulled recon Marines from. But either way, um, I appreciate so that explaining the abbreviations there, by that, the way. That's, that, that, that's right. That, yeah. That's the other. So that is the other thing too <laughs> that uh, the marine or the military is known for is these little mnemonics. All the abbreviations. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, so, but yeah, so that that's that's really what I wanted to do, uh, and uh, I, like I said, I enlisted um, the summer prior to 9/11. So it was uh, roughly yeah. June of 2001. Um, I, I go, I enlist. I was 18 at the time, so I didn't need anyone to sign off. I literally just went by, well, my mom knew I was going, but I went and signed up, whatever. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I get home and I tell her like, hey, like I have a tentative ship date for boot camp and it's such and such a date. It was going to be prior to graduating from high school. And my mom goes, no, you're graduating high school. Are you serious? And I said, like, I said, mom, I said, dude, this is the military, man. There's going to be plenty of graduations. I said, it'll be fine. I'll just, I'll leave a little early. It'll be no big deal. And she goes, no, you need to change the date. So uh, 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 I changed, changed the date and, and left uh, a little bit, 
a little bit later, a couple of weeks after uh, graduating high school, I spent, so for anyone who knows or maybe doesn't know, uh, the Marine Corps has two what they call recruit depots. Those things are, um, one is in South Carolina at a place called Paris Island. Uh, no one has ever been to Paris Island that is not in the Marine Corps. Uh, they've been maybe to the island that's kind of right across from that, which is uh, Hilton Head. Very nice uh, vacation yeah. destination. There you go. Um, <laughs> you can and, see the golf courses in the distance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, and, and, and what's funny is like, you know, if you ever talk to a Marine, like they'll tell you, you first of all how you get to the island is via bus there's no like your parents don't aren't dropping you off like there's no goodbyes you, you get you get taken there on a bus in the middle of the night and as you're approaching the base they tell you to put your head between your legs because they don't want you to see the road in so it, it's because they don't want you escaping and, and so so you have no idea you're you're literally head between your legs rolling into to the recruit depot and then um the next thing you know is you pull up beside this building and, you know, there, I think it was on the discovery channel. This is years ago. They would have, you know, what it takes like making a Marine or something like that. And you'd have this drill instructor just gets on the bus and immediately just starts yelling and the chaos ensues from there. Yeah. Um, one of the very, you know, famous things every Marine knows is the yellow footprints. Um, so they pull up the bus and then uh, this guy's drill instructor gets on the bus and says, get out, get on, get on my yellow footprints right now. And it just starts from there and you just kind of go from there. Um, and then the other recruit depots out in San Diego, uh, again, another Marine Corps thing. Uh, when you talk to Marines, real Marines are made on the East coast, um, out in San Diego on the West coast. They just go to, uh, they go to baseball games. Uh, they go to the Padres games uh, when the Padres are still in San Diego. So, yeah, that is that, that is another thing. Uh, if, if you ever uh, you know come across a Marine, they, they will tell you that the, one of those San Diego the, the real, Marines. That, that's right. They're called they're, they are they're called Hollywood Marines. They're allowed to go to baseball games, wear sunglasses, the, the whole nine yards. Oh, yeah, God. yeah, I love it. Oh, that's too funny. The yellow footprints, I, you know, my experience with yellow footprints is going through the airport. <laughs> Every dang weekend, the damn TSA agent. Yeah, put your feet on that. Okay. Yeah. Yes. All right. Yeah. Been through this before. Here we go. Right. 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 You have anything in your pockets? No. This is not my first rodeo. No, ma'am. It's just my driver's license. So yeah. Good. <laughs> yeah oh my god too funny so all right man well that's cool so get into this um yeah. tell me tell me kind of on you know just being military veteran um like when you think about memorial day versus veterans day in your own words kind of you know what how does that resonate with you like where does it you know where do you where do you go yeah with that? um you know, I'd say Memorial Day is is pretty tough. Um, you battle two very unique feelings. Uh, one is the feeling that, you know, you want to honor these people. Um, and, and, and so you want to celebrate their death. But at the same time, you may say, well, you have a bit of a selfish feeling where you mourn. Um, and and it's, it's pretty tough um, because I think it's hard um, to fully fathom the relationship that you develop with people that you otherwise, you could come from two completely different backgrounds in life. You, you could have a, a kid who was born, say, in Long Island or, you know, to a very wealthy family. 
versus a kid from Louisiana or a kid from like extremely rural parts of Florida, you know, and what have you. And you bring them together and they become brothers Um, and they become brothers in the sense of uh, through training, you go through the exact same training together. And then when you deploy, you put your life in their hands and then he puts his life in your hands. Um, And so it's pretty tough then when, when guys don't make it back. Um, So that, that, that's kind of Memorial day. Um, And it's, it's a day of remembrance for people who really have, you know, we were joking around before when, when you signed the, the dotted line, so to speak. Well, that dotted line is a check um, and, and the, the, the payment is left blank, but it includes up to including your life. Yeah. And, and those guys on Memorial Day, we we honor them because those are the guys that that check was filled out. Uh, the, the American people and the government, they cashed that sucker out and um, they're no longer with us. Uh, Veterans Day is uh, is a day to honor, um, you know, the, the veterans who who have fought and, and made it back. We were fortunate enough to kind of come back. Um, and then you, you have you have another day in May, um, too, which is Armed Forces Day. And that's really to celebrate the, the folks who are still in the military and, and, and whatnot. Mm-hmm. But that's kind of the rundown of, of those, you know, kind of two to three th- those, those holidays that we yeah. celebrate. Um, and I would definitely Memorial Day is, is probably the toughest. Yeah. Well, you know, and we say celebrate because there's just not another word for it. <laughs> I don't know what else to use, you know, but celebrate seems like the wrong word um, in, in many ways to me at this point. So, yeah, I, I would say it, it's tough because um, I think, like I said, I, I think from, you know, from one context, you, you do want to celebrate them and, and kind of, you know, toast them, you know, honor them and things like that. But then there's also a selfish side of it that you just, you want to mourn them because, you know, it's, it's not, it's not right. It's not fair. Um, but, but those guys, they have made the eternal sacrifice and, you know, they completed their duty. Um, and so, yeah. Yeah. And I don't think it's something that goes away either. I mean, is it getting any easier year after year? You know, just as these thoughts kind of come up about buddies now, that you've lost and that kind of thing. No, it, it, it's tough. You know, um, like I was, I was writing up kind of an outline for this, and mm-hmm. there, there was numerous emotional times. Yeah, where you writing this up, and and you just you go through like each person, um, and and you go to, you don't necessarily go to um, say the. Uh, you don't just think about when they died, but you think about all the other events. Right. And, you know, like for instance, you know, one of the guys was my roommate, um, uh, prior to leaving. Um, and you know, we, same group, he was just in a different team. Um, he was, he was my roommate before we left. Um, he, he died in Fallujah. So, uh, it's, it's, it's stuff like that. Well, I think for me, that's, kind of why I wanted to do this um, is because like, I'm not, you know, I'm not here to, I don't, I don't want to hear all these awful stories about how people died. I mean, I think that that that's an important context, especially in, in some, in some regard, but there's more to someone's life than how they died. You know, I kind of want to hear about the person, you know, I want, we want yeah. to kind of hear, 
hear their story told, um, you know, and in talking about this, you know, you were, you were reminding me of, of something that I don't remember if you said it or if I said it about how, you know, it's not really, it's not really two deaths, right? That's right. You know, whenever we, um, you know, whenever we talk about, um, you know, the, these guys dying, um, we say that there's a, there's a, there's a passage that says a warrior actually dies twice. Once is when his heart stops and his spirit moves on to his next adventure. And the second is, is arguably probably more tragic than that, but it's when his story is no longer told and it was told for the last time, his memory um, lost to the pages, his song no longer sung, um, you know, Memorial day weekend, we need to do more than remember. Um, uh, we, we need to tell the stories of, of our brothers, our sisters, the people who are no longer with us. We need to tell their stories, raise, raise toast to them. Um, and, and so we can honor them and allow the echoes um, to, to basically reach them in their well-earned rest, um, pass the legacy on to the next generation so that it's never going to perish. It'll always be with us. Yeah. And whether it's us, whether it's my kids, um, or their kids, like whoever, we, we, we need to pass this on. Um, so we know the sacrifices that these folks have made. Um, you know, we need to live it out loud, speak them up and, and let these legends never die. Yeah. Yeah. Cause story stories have a, a cool way of living on. That's for sure. You know, I mean, we all have stories from childhood and whatnot. And I think, you know, there's, there's stories that we don't know that, that we just need to hear. And so I think, you know, if, if a small little plug, cause we want to do this year over year after year, you know, I mean, we're going to hear kind of about some folks that you served with um, and some stories that you know about, but, but, you know, I think if people are listening to this and they have lost a, a family member, service member served, you know, in the military and they want to, come on and tell the story or they want to send the story to us for us to tell, then, then we want to try to help do that in some way, yeah. whatever it is. So that, because we can put this out there and it can just kind of live on um, and people can listen to it whenever, whenever they have time. So we want to try to, that's kind of why we're doing this is we want to try to help be part of that, help those. I think you said that, you know, that, that their story will just echo um, and kind of live on forever. So that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, kind of talking about my, uh, you know, my, my experience, um, is, uh, the, the lead up to the deployment that I went on, um, was, uh, in, in the spring of 2004, I was, I was still in sniper school at the time. Um, and we had a, a group of contractors from Blackwater that their convoy got, got ambushed. And so, what had happened was their convoy gets ambushed and from there they were um, murdered and um, drugged through the streets of Fallujah and uh, uh, burned and then hanged from the bridge over the Euphrates in Fallujah. And, you know, basically at that point in time, Fallujah was a bit of a no-go zone. I mean, it was, it was kind of being built up and it was a huge center for the insurgency in Iraq. And it was one of those things, you know, that, um, you know, don't you just be careful with what you do. And um, kind of the, the government mentality was let it let things go. As long as there was no outright attacks on coalition forces, it was kind of the, the attitude of, you know, F around and find out um, type of a deal. Well, 
the the insurgency after round and uh it was time for them to find out so what happened was this kicked off the initial invasion into fallujah this is the first battle um and um uh, they they sent uh, groups of Marines in from Camp Fallujah, which was basically roughly three kilometers on the southwest side of the city or southeast side of the city and uh, went in there. This happened. This occurred the beginning of April. All in all was done by the end of April. Signed an agreement with the Iraqi police that said, look, man, this is your job. This is your responsibility to keep these nut jobs from coming back in here. Um, so from there, pulled back out. Well, like a lot of other things in military history, uh, once we pull out, we create a pretty big vacuum. And what then ensued over the summer was that city was fortified um, with insurgents and munitions. Um, and then that led up to the deployment that I went on. Uh, we deployed right after Labor Day uh, 2004. And... Um, Fallujah at that time was a very dangerous area. We couldn't even go anywhere close to the city. Um, there was there was roadside bombs on um, kind of the exit ramp, if you will. The way the city was laid out was you have an interstate system that's running north and south, and then you have another interstate system that would be running kind of east and west through the city. Well, if you got off anywhere in right outside of Fallujah, we call it the cloverleaf. Those were the entrance and, and um, ongoing ramps on in, onto the interstate system. Those things were laced with, with roadside bombs. You, you would go there and you would just get annihilated. Um, and so things just were, were left to kind of uh, alone. And then um, leading up to November, which November was the, was the uh, push into, op it was called Operation Phantom Fury. Leading up to that, our, our base, like I said, it was about three kilometers on the southeast side of the city. We would get mortared every single day. Um, we would get incoming, um, you know, typically around like three in the afternoon. You would you would hear the alarms go and then you would hear hear the rounds impact. Um, and it's pretty weird what you get used to. Um, it, it's literally like, oh, it's, it's another mortar attack today um, type of a deal. And so, you know, from there we operate and we're doing things. And then and we're just waiting because we knew it was, you know, it's kind of like, you know, for anyone on on the East Coast or in the North that's familiar with a snowstorm and you're in school, right? It's like, you know, everyone hears the whispers of like, hey, it snow's coming. We're going to get out early. There's going to be a snow day, like whatever. And you just kind of get this sense of excitement. That was kind of what we were what we were dealing with was um, we knew Fallujah was coming and we knew during our seven month deployment, we were going to Fallujah. It was, it was yeah. a matter of time. It was just, when is it actually going to happen? And so, um, the end of October, the beginning of November, um, we do some things with our snipers, um, on the outside of Fallujah. And then the, the beginning of November, I want to say it's November 5th, um, uh, no, no, November. Yeah. Right around like November 5th. The uh, we formally uh, kick off Operation Phantom Fury, um, and then from there things just kind of got bad for us. Mm. Um, we uh, on uh, November thirteenth we were um, conducting basically uh, we we set up a patrol base with our vehicles. Um, it was myself and another uh, my spotter. We kicked out into a sniper hide. Um, and then shortly thereafter, we have a patrol that goes out from the patrol base, just kind of like walking through a village 
Uh, and, you know, I'm set up in the quote unquote guardian angel where I'm just watching over the patrol. Um, nothing really happens on the patrol. One of the members of the, uh, that was attached to us was an engineer and they, uh, this engineer had a metal detector and his main job was to find either buried munitions, arms, you know, or IEDs. Mm-hmm. And so he, uh, they, they make their way back uh, to the, uh, towards the patrol base, getting ready to kind of wrap things up. And we find an IED roughly about 50 meters from the patrol base, uh, or we find the metal detector goes off. So we get a hit on the metal detector. Um, we start kind of digging up around it and we find it, it's a, uh, it's an IED as a kind of a pipe bomb. And, uh, at that point in time, I'm basically keeping eyes on the village, uh, because, the majority of the IEDs were uh, what we call command detonated, meaning that uh, you had to have someone initiate the explosion. So it wasn't like a, a pressure plate or things like that, where you step on it, step off and it goes off. Um, a lot of the IEDs in Iraq, so that's, that's exactly it. So a lot of the IEDs um, that were going off or that were being detonated were either attached to a cell phone or attached to a two-way Motorola walkie-talkie. And what happens just in very general simplistic terms, when you have a plastic explosive, say C4, for example, um, you need um, an electrical charge for that really. Mm-hmm. And so what they would do is they would um, attach a wire to the cell phone um, and then uh, the other end of it would go into the plastic explosive. And so from there, all they had to do was call that cell phone. Um, and as soon as it lit up, that was enough of, of an electric, electrical charge, it detonated the IED. The same thing would happen with a two-way Motorola, literally keying the handset, literally just pressing the push to talk feature would be enough of an electrical charge mm-hmm. to set off the IED. Um, so, you know, uh, we, we find this IED. Um, like I said, I'm still looking at the village, um, looking for anyone who potentially has a cell phone or is, is mm-hmm. you know, kind of has the ability to detonate this thing, not seeing anything. I happen to look over to where these guys are. And the next thing I know is the IED goes off. Um, and one of the things that happens is it's, it's hard to kind of fathom and and say like, well, what do you do in that moment? Um, you know, and, and you have to remain calm um, because a lot of times these IEDs were used to initiate an ambush. Um, and what I would say about the insurgency is um, you have a lot of respect for those people uh, that, that fight us because they fight a war that they think they can win. And um, what that means is they won't outright engages. They know that they don't stand a chance on the battlefield with the Marines or with the U.S. military, um, but they they take advantage of, of moments of weakness or, um, you know, when they think that they can um, get a tactical advantage. And so creating a, a very catastrophic event, such as an IED, is enough to do that. And so, like I said, this thing was roughly 50 meters from where we had our vehicle set up. There were seven Marines that were surrounded by this IED. Um, my platoon sergeant, Javier Oblice, um, immediately gets on the radio, um, you know, basically setting up security. You know, hey, like we need to keep get eyes out. 
Um, did anyone see anything? We need it. We need a head count right now. We need a head count. Well, the head count comes up and we're missing two guys. Um, one, one of the guys, uh, was a guy by the name of Jack Dempsey or Kevin Jack Dempsey. Um, he, he was probably the closest to the IED and was, did not make it. He died a pretty catastrophic death. Um, the other uh, guy that died was, um, a guy by the name of Justin Ellsworth. And that was our, our engineer that was attached to us. He was the guy who found the IED. Um, and, uh, no one knew where he was at. And, uh, when I had looked over that way, right as the IED was going off, I see basically Justin flying through the air, like he was punted like a football. Um, and so I go from my position over to him and we immediately, I, I called the corpsman over um, and, uh, you know, we're trying to just render some battlefield aid to this guy. Um, but without getting too graphic, um, he basically, his torso was separated from his legs um, because of the explosion. And so we try the best that we can, probably for a good 15 to 20 minutes, um, but he, he ultimately died right there. Um, and, uh, you know, that was literally roughly six days into Operation Phantom Fury. Um, and, uh, you know, that's the one thing, too, that I always point out when we talk about um, in, in the course, you know, we talk about that line graph, um, you know, that looks at like the injury severity rate and, the, and, the, and the, the fatality rate. Right. And we see from 2005 onward to, to 2013 is what the graph looks at. And we see that the fatality rate significantly drops off, but the severity rate of these injuries significantly increase. Yeah. And I always point out and I always tell people, you know, this is real significant because, um, this is when the IEDs became extremely effective for the insurgency, um, it, at least specifically in Iraq, you know, in the early parts and prior to Fallujah. So in the, the earlier parts of 2004 and, and prior to that, IEDs were kind of like fireworks. They, they either didn't go off or they were more like a light show. They, they weren't really effective at all. But we had some different influences, specifically Syrians that moved into the area. So this, this area of, of Fallujah, which is was called the, it's the Al-Ambar province of Iraq. Um, we had these Syrians move in and they really tweaked um, the, the manufacturing of these bombs and they, become, they became extremely effective. And so, you know, that, that's, that's what we see uh, really kicking off into Fallujah. And um, that, that led into, and, and so, what makes things really tough? And we were talking about like, the difference between Veterans Day and Memorial Day. Um, what makes things tough in the military is we're, we're conducting combat operations. We don't have time to pause. And so that happened on November 13th. On November 14th, I was ambushed on the Euphrates. Um, yeah. So, you know, we, we, we just had a pretty significant um, uh, uh, event that happened the day before and we're back on we're back at it the next day you mean um, you know they didn't give you a load management day no day no we, we did it wasn't we a we, we, you didn't we didn't just have, get to decide to take the day off yeah it's it's, it's 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 crazy that Interesting. Uh, yeah that 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 you know um how how things are looked at and 
you know, oh, you, you had a rough day, go ahead and take a day off. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we were in the midst of Fallujah and, um, you know, subsequently Fallujah is considered the bloodiest battle of Iraq um, for all American forces. Um, we, there's a lot of bloodshed in Fallujah and there was, there was no time to, to mourn these deaths. Um, I can just, an offshoot, just to paint the picture of Fallujah and what it was like was um, we had grunt units. Um, and so the gr grunts are the infantry. Um, and uh, so we had these grunt units that were going in and going house to house through Fallujah. Um, and like I said, we had been dropping, um, doing mail droppings um, leading up to Fallujah, basically said, look, man, dude, we're coming into the city. We're not telling you when we're going to come into the city relatively soon. So if you're not a combatant, you need to leave. So we gave pl people plenty of warning. Um, and then it also, you could say, well, you gave people warning that you're coming. So we're just going to fortify it even more. Yeah. And so, you know, what, what we would do is you would literally, you know, go in, into a building, stack up on a building. Um, a lot of times that building was rigged with IEDs. And so basically, as soon as you open the door that trips the IED, bam, wipes out a team. Um, the other thing that would go on too was um, you would stack up in, on a room, you would make entry, whether however you did that, they would have a machine gun nest in the corner of the room. So basically, it's and aimed in on that door. And as soon as that breach was made, or as soon as entry was made in that room, they were lighting up that doorway. Mm -hmm. And it got to the point where, you know, people may have heard of like using flashbangs and things like that, um, whatever. No, we've seen it on TV. Up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's t t yeah. TV and, and Call of Duty. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't, I'm so, not a video gamer guy. I don't yeah. do that, but uh, I've yeah. seen it on TV. <laughs> yeah. Um, so e either way, uh, yeah, there, there was in Fallujah, we, there was, there was no really using flashbangs. You straight up just use a chunk of C4 and you float, you throw that sucker in the room, goes off, make entry. Um, and, and so it was, it, it was nuts. Um, these, these people, like I said, they, they fought a war and they, they would fight the way that they thought they could win. Um, yeah. and so that was, that was Fallujah and whatnot. And then, you know, as November continued on, um, you know, things were still kind of getting pretty dicey. Um, and then uh, November 25th rolled around. Uh, and that was a Thursday. And, uh, you know, th these folks, like I've said, I mean, I can't say it enough. They, they fight the war they thought they could win. And they use some pretty um, unique tactics. Um, I, the IED was one of the most effective. And they would use different tactics to employ the IED. Because, you know, you Americans, we're, we're pretty good. Like we, we, we can notice things are out of the ordinary, but the military members mean. And so, you know, you can't just dig up a hole along the side of the road and say that, uh, and then put on a bomb and cover that up. I mean, it leaves some fresh dirt, right? Yeah. So you're like, it's out yeah. of the ordinary, like something's going on here. Yeah. So what they yeah. would do is um, sometimes there litter was a huge issue in, in Iraq. Mm. Um, so it wasn't out of the ordinary to see like some, you know, some litter, some garbage along the side of the road, whatever. Um, so what they would do is they would sometimes um, put a, a dig a hole, put a grain sack over in the, over the, the bomb. 
And then from there, um, just leave the green sack there, you know, maybe lightly cover in, cover up the dirt, whatever, or cover up the hole with dirt. Um, and then from there, set off the IED. Um, the other thing that they would do would be uh, literally take dead animals. And so they would take a dead goat or dead sheep, cut up the carcass and um, pack a bomb in, in, the, in the dead animal. And so uh, on, on November 25th, what happened was we were driving down the road um, and there was a dead animal along the side of the road. And we had gotten reports up until this point, like, hey, this could be a tactic for these folks. So, um, and, and knowing the lethality of, of the IEDs, we called um, EOD out, which EOD is Explosive Ordnance Disposable. Uh, disposal. You, you can think of them as the bomb squad, so to speak. That's, that's a yeah. bomb squad. So we call the bomb squad out um, and they have like a little robot device um, with a camera and some arms. And so from there, we, we ran that, um, uh, the robot up um, to where the animal was and we could certainly see wires coming out of this animal, which is pretty unique. You know, a lot of, a lot of dead yeah. animals don't have wires coming out of them. Yeah. So at that point in time, um, we uh, brought the robot back, had some C4, um, then took the robot, robot back up there, set the plastic explosive on, on the animal, set the charge, detonated it. So we detonated one IED that day. EOD leaves. They get like they're they're gone maybe for like a minute or two. So they're just right down the road. Another explosion goes off. EOD was hit with a with an IED that day. So that's the mm. second IED. And so um, the day continues. You know, I mean, it's like again, like we just continue on with what we're doing, right? I mean, we got a mission to carry out. We're going to carry out the mission. And so, Charlie getting... Mike, I learned that recently. Charlie Mike. Yeah. 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 And, and so, uh, uh, so it, it's getting close to the afternoon or late into the afternoon. And we decide like, Hey, like, we're just going to pass some time. Um, we're not going to really drive too much more during the day because of all the, the stuff we've seen and dealt with the two IEDs already today. We're just going to wait until it gets dark. And then we're going to move to where third platoon was at, which is a sister platoon. Uh, and we're going to, you know, kind of meet up with them. And so to pass time, we, um, we, we took our snipers uh, and we set up on the Euphrates. Um, you know, nothing, nothing like too sneaky, anything like that. It was really just more of a show of force of like, hey, we're here, you know, whatever. Well, within probably 20 to 30 minutes, we had um, about 15 to 20 cars that pull up on the other side of the Euphrates. They back in. And now the insurgents are doing their own show of force. And we have this old fashioned standoff where here we are completely exposed. And then we have no idea what's going on in these other vehicles. They just show up and they're just watching us just like we're watching them. Um, and at that point in time, it's getting dark. Uh, and then, you know, roughly uh, maybe like 20 minutes after this kind of standoff, they just pull out and leave. And I think the reason why they left is because they could see the, um, our, our vehicles in the background. And so we had, had what we, in the military, we call heavy guns. Um, so heavy guns are, uh, as a 50 cal machine gun and a Mark 19, uh, both of those are fully automatic. 
And so, you know, the, the 50 cal is, is pretty devastating when it goes off and then the Mark 19 is, you know, fully automatic grenade launcher, launching grenades at you. So at that point in time, we had, um, we definitely would have the upper hand relatively quickly. And so they, they drive off and we don't think much more of it. We're like, okay, you know, whatever. Uh, now it's getting dark. We're packing up and moving on. Uh, right as it was dusk transitioning into dark, we're driving down the road. IED goes off, um, hit third vehicle in the convoy. Um, everybody in that convoy, except for one person got a purple heart out of it. Um, the driver lost his leg. Uh, and, um, uh, my, my platoon Sergeant Javier Oblice, um, actually he was mortally wounded in that, uh, in, in that explosion. And, you know, a couple things about Javier, this guy was, was, he was pretty close to me. Um, he was the, the main reason he was the guy that got me into sniper school. Um, and it's always funny, you know, sometimes you look back and you're like, um, at some of the things that you were able to, to do or, or go to, or opportunities that were provided for you. And you're like, you know, how did I ever get that opportunity? Um, and I, I always look back and I'm like, you know, there's, there's times where people see things in you that you don't even see in yourself. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that was, that was the thing with, with Gunny O'Blice. Um, I don't know if he went out on a limb for me, um, but he definitely, that was the reason I got to sniper school. Um, up until that point in time in Iraq, the, the guy took me under his wing. Um, he would, whenever we would do sniper things, like he was a sniper as well. Um, he and I would go out together and he would just work with me. He would teach me things. Um, and uh, so, you know, we get hit uh, and, and even, you know, with that, similar to what, what happened, you know, roughly 12 days before when the ID went off, here's this guy who's in charge, mortally wounded. He starts calling, setting up security. He's worried about other guys in the vehicle, not, not himself. He's, he tells the corpsman specifically, you need to go attend to these other guys. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, from there, setting up security, making sure that everything is set up. Because one of the things that we knew was, um, again, like these, these IEDs were used to launch larger um, attacks. And what was significant about this specific attack was it was the third vehicle in the convoy. So what that meant was it basically separated the convoy. We have two vehicles in the front, two vehicles in the back. And now, so that limits what you're able to do. That basically paralyzes that convoy because you can't get around the down vehicle that was, that was blown up. So you have two people, two vehicles in the front that all they can do is really go forward. Um, And, and to put this further into perspective, the road system over there is um, elevated. And so, you know, the road is built up and then it has um, big berms that go off. And these berms are probably in the ballpark of between eight to 10 feet high. So, you know, the road is up and then it drops off into the farmland. Not like you just go around. Yeah, it's not like, you know, there's a shoulder and then we just kind of skirt the yeah. shoulder. No, there, there's no way to go around. So literally the, the convoy is paralyzed. We're, if, if we get hit right now, we have to stay and fight. Um, and, and that um, it goes against like one of the, um, when you're in an ambush, the, 
the, the per or how you defeat an ambush is you push through the ambush. You actually attack into the ambush. Mm -hmm. Um, you, you have to get out of the kill zone. Um, but in this situation, there's no, you can't get out of the kill zone. You're there. And so we call QRF, which is a quick reactionary force. Um, and we have security set up and we're just waiting. Um, and, and, you know, this, at this point in time, it's completely dark you're just you're sitting there. Um, we're, we got our, our one guy would have literally bled out uh, that became the amputee if we didn't put a tourniquet on him. So we have that we're dealing with as well. Um, and, and then uh, what, three, four other guys, four other guys in the vehicle that are seriously wounded. Um, and we finally get them extracted. We get the QRF out there. We get them medically extracted and then back to um, where we were at. Um, and then when it, when it comes to Javier, uh, he was stabilized and then taken to Germany. Uh, and what was going on in the context of all this was we, um, we we felt pretty down about it because, um, he, he took some shrapnel to his eye, um, and he lost his vision. We knew relatively quickly that he was going to be blind in one eye. And it was pretty significant because, you know, his goal that he had told some of us, um, leading up to this was once we get back, he was going to try out for Delta. Uh, so Delta force. Um, and, uh, we we're like, well, dude, like that sucks, man. Like, dude, he's, he's basically done. He's going to be either forced yeah. to medically retire or he'll have a permanent restrictions on his job. He's going to be, you know, he's, he's not doing the same job that he's, that he's doing now. Right. And, um, then, uh, you know, that was the 25th of, uh, of November, uh, on 12 one, he died. Um, he basically a piece of shrapnel went through his eye and was lodged in his brain. Um, it mm. caused, uh, increased swelling in the brain and a subsequent infection. And, um, he, he ultimately, uh, ended up dying from there. Um, so that was, that was pretty much November and, um, you know, kind of the, the losses that we sustained there. And then if I, um, if I remember Zach, I mean, I think you, told me a story too about Javier where I mean basically you were pinned down and he saved your life isn't that right that that's the right same? so yeah. that was that was uh that was the, the ambush uh fault the day after the initial that first ID that I talked about with with yeah. Dempsey and then Justin Ellsworth and so we were on the Euphrates um and it was it was a complete uh it, it was just a, a fluke sort of thing in a couple ways. Um, you know, we, we set up, uh, we, I, I took uh, three other guys with me this time and to set up a sniper hide, we set up a sniper hide on the, uh, on the Euphrates. And so what was going on at that point in time with Fallujah was they were, Fallujah was getting reinforced both with men and munitions on from the other side of the Euphrates and so the standing rules of engagement at the time was basically anybody crossing the Euphrates, that's a, that's, that's a military combatant, fair game to engage. And so they wanted to set up our snipers and just basically to watch. And so we, um, we set up um, and we were just watching things. And we had this vehicle on, on the road behind us. And so let me just back up and say we had uh, – the, the folks that we had with us at that, or I had with me at that time, I had myself, um, I had a, a bolt action sniper rifle. And um, what that means is that's like a, think of it as a deer hunting rifle. 
Um, so not a, a highly accurate, but you're not really, you don't have a high volume of fire capabilities right. with that. And um, I had another guy with uh, what was called a saw, which is a squad automatic weapon. It's a fully automatic belt fed um, machine gun. And then um, I had another guy with an M4 and uh, uh, the, the other, the third guy um, that was with us had a basically what's called a medium machine gun. And that was a, uh, it was a 240, uh, which means it, it shot a little bit bigger of a round. It was a 308 um, than what the saw did. So I set that guy up pointing back towards the road. So um, uh, no one would do a drive-by on us. Yeah. And um, the rest of us were focused across the Euphrates. There was a guy in an old Ford Bronco. Um, it was a red Bronco, drove past us three times. Very, very suspicious. Um, you know, drove past us very slow um, and then did it two more times. And, you know, Alex, who was the 240 gunner, said like, hey, man, like you're, there's this there's this guy driving past us, you know, whatever. I said, just keep an eye on him, da, 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 whatever. And then, um, then he does it two more times and he, we make note of it. And then um, the next thing I know, roughly, you know, 10 to 15 minutes after he drove past us the last time, old boy ends up on the other, other side of the Euphrates. Mm. And uh, basically what happened was he went over there and told him exactly what we were doing, where we were at. Um, and they launched three males in a canoe and uh, I called it in and said, basically, Hey, like, what do you want me to do? And, uh, the, uh, the, the folks at the patrol base said, uh, like, well, we're going to send someone from the patrol base up there to intercept them. I said, no, nah, man, I said, dude, there's no, there's no time for that. I said, these guys are hauling ass. It's there. It's literally like they're on the Olympic row team. I mean, they are, they're <laughs> not wasting time getting across this river. And I said, I got three other guys up here. I said, how about I just send two of two of those guys down to intercept them and see what's going on. They're like, yeah, that's fine. Go ahead and do it. Well, um, as soon as, and so we had two radios with us. One was a larger radio and the other one was called an M biter. It's kind of like, you can think of it as like a more high speed um, walkie talkie. And I had the M biter and I had a, a camelback backpack uh, with all my sniper ammo in. And so instead of taking the bigger radio, I gave these two guys my, uh, my backpack with my radio that had my sniper rounds in. And as soon as I gave that radio or say, as soon as I gave that ba backpack up, I said, I'm screwed. If something happens, I'm, I'm screwed because I don't have any ammo now. I mean, besides what's, yeah. what's in the gun, what's in the rifle. Yeah. And so they literally get maybe 10 feet from us and they get up, they start running 10 feet from us. And all you hear is commotion on the other side of the Euphrates. At that point in time, we start getting hit with heavy small arms fire. Uh, so small arms, AK 47. Um, and we are, they are pinned down. I'm pinned down. I start opening up on the sniper rifle and then uh, the guy who was with us, uh, with Alex, with the 240, he's, he spins around and he's like, dunk, man, where are they at? I said, dude, they are all over. Um, and so he starts opening up on the 240, um, largely in hopes of allowing to provide some suppressive fire to get these guys back. 
Um, so yeah. they're not out in the open. And so they come back, I get more rounds on my gun. And then, um, you know, we, we get the, the guy with the saw chase, he opens up on that. And then, um, uh, Rose opens up, he has start shooting with his M4 at this point in time, the, the folks on the canoe pop up from the Euphrates up the bank, up the embankment of the Euphrates. They popped up probably about a hundred, hundred yards short of where we were. And uh, I, I really think they misjudged where they landed and where we were at. Um, mm -hmm. And I think largely what was going on was the, uh, the guys on the other, other side of the Euphrates were, was largely a distraction. And so they wanted to take our, our attention off of the canoe and place it on them and yeah. then allow the guys to, from the canoe to pop up and basically just to ambush us even more from, from uh, the river. Right. Um, but that didn't happen. <laughs> my, my buddy with uh, Chase with the saw, he, he dumped about 200 rounds into where they popped up. So we, we <laughs> emptied, we emptied a, a whole, whole belt um, in, in, into that area. Um, and then we start, we get on the radio and uh, we're like, like, Hey dude, man, I said, we're taking heavy small arms fire up here. Um, you know, da, 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 we need, we need some support. And they're like, yeah, it's just stand by. Like we're taking, we're taking rounds in the patrol base. And I said, <laughs> all right. So two of us are pinned down right now. Um, well, and what had actually ended up happening was there, there was ricochets from the in, the rounds that we were taking the firefight we were in rounds were ricocheting hitting back into the patrol base and so that's the the impacts they were taking and so um but yeah what javier did um the thing that saved us that day was we typically never patrol with a 240 with with the, the larger belt fed machine gun typically the only thing we would have with us would be the saw which is the 556 mm -hmm. or the the light machine gun he 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 had the the foresight to basically say look look man like let's let's take the 240 take the 240 up there as well and um so that that's what we ended up doing and you know ultimately that's really what kind of saved us um because once once that 240 opened up um we we kind of gained firepower superiority pretty darn fast um and, and kind of going from there so, but yeah, that was that. And then, you know, ultimately we, we come back and then I had made the decision at that point in time to, to get out of the Marine Corps. Um, uh, and so I, I just, I transitioned out of that unit or not out of the unit, but out of the team and um, work, started working with another group. Uh, and my, my unit redeployed then in uh, March of 2006. Um, and that's the other kind of thing too, that I think gets lost a lot of times are the sacrifices that these, that these folks are, are paying, not just the sacrifices of the actual, the military member or the service member, the warfighter, sacrifices of the family. And so the way that it worked for us was we would literally be on um, uh, roughly 14 month rotations. So you would deploy for seven months, you would come back, you would do then what we called a school phase where you went on and did different schooling um, could be jump school, dive school, could be sniper school, advanced sniper, you know, what, whatever type of school, but you do a school phase from there, you go right into a workup and get ready for your next deployment. And so, you know, roughly every 14 months you're redeploying back out. So it, it's, it's a pretty, it's, it's a pretty tough um, 
you know, kind of routine to keep up, especially for Afghanistan. You're looking at 19 and a half years. We've been doing this. Um, Iraq, roughly 18, um, 18 years. This has been going on. And so um, from there, um, I'm getting out. My group is getting ready to redeploy. Um, and this is just a little bit of a funny story to kind of mix in here. But uh, whenever guys in that in my unit get out, we have what's called a paddle party. And, and, and a paddle party is they take a, a boat paddle or an oar, so to speak, uh, and they decorate it. Um, they put a, a very fancy wrap on it for the handle and whatnot. And then they'll, they'll give you a plaque with um, all, everything that you've accomplished while you're in the Marine Corps or in, in reconnaissance and whatnot. And it ultimately, Kyle, you would love it, turns into another drunken fiasco. Yeah, yes. Uh, it's, yes. It is nothing more than, than beer drinking a drunken fiasco. Um, and so, in fact, like typically it'll happen at a, at a bar. There was one bar uh, in, in Jacksonville, North Carolina, where Camp Lejeune is that we typically would always frequent. It was called Ducks. Um, and we would have like, they had like kind of a, it wasn't fully outside. It was like a screened in outside deal. Mm -hmm. And, uh, the end of the party, um, we have a bit of a song called brother recon. And while you're singing brother recon, the, the guy who's getting out is chugging pitchers of beer. Um, <laughs> and that's, that's what we do. Uh, so <laughs> With all that being said, <laughs> mind you now, so this is, this is a Thursday night. Um, our, right. The guys are getting ready to deploy on Saturday. They're leaving Saturday. To, they're leaving the States, flying um, to Kuwait, Iraq uh, uh, Saturday. And so the other, going back to kind of things that people in the Marine Corps know about, everybody who's ever been a Marine knows what Thursday is. Thursday is what we call field day Thursday. Field day okay. is basically when you clean your room and we're not talking like, you know, just kind of hitting high spots with dust and vacuum and stuff. No, um, depending on the unit you're in Friday morning, you have field day inspection and they literally will walk through your room and they will look for things that aren't clean, aren't tidy. So Thursday night, the Thursday before the battalion is getting ready to leave. They decide like, man, you know what? We're going to have, we're going to have Dunkel's paddle party since this is the last time everyone's going to be around. And my one buddy, um, he, uh, just to clue you in on this guy. Um, I don't think he had a high school diploma. He had what he called the good enough diploma, which was the GED. Um, <laughs> and, and so again, you know, you take a look at these people, that the people who go into the military, you're, you're like, uh, a lot of times you're wondering like, what drives these people? Well, you know, the guy yeah. who has the good enough diploma. And so any, anyway, um, he goes, he goes to chase my, my buddy who was, you know, I, in the, in the, the firefight, I just, uh, it, you know, talked about, he goes to chase, he goes, Hey man, um, he is, uh, like, uh, I want to kind of borrow your truck. I got to go get some stuff for Dunkel's paddle party. And so he's like, uh, yeah, 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 sure. Like, whatever, you know. So he goes out uh, where we lived in Camp Lejeune. We lived, it was close to what's called the back gate. So Camp Lejeune is huge. To get from where we live to the main gate would be roughly, it's like 40, 45 minutes. So it's a huge mm -hmm. military base. So we lived out the back gate. And um, there was a, a flea market, so to speak, out the back gate called, and this, the, place of business was called the junk lady and so my buddy's like dude they got a couch 
at, at the junk ladies, I'm just going to buy this couch for Dunkel's paddle party. Right. So he comes back, has this couch loaded up in, in the back of this truck. And, uh, you know, we unload it and everything. And one thing leads to another as the night unfolds and <laughs> a fire gets started and uh the the duty now like this is the guy who's like in charge of this entire this part of camp lejeune like so what it's a it's a place called like courthouse bay so he's in charge of the entire courthouse bay area um and there's there's numerous units that are in courthouse bay um and he sees this fire i mean because you can see it across courthouse bay so he comes over and he's like, what in the F is going on here? Like, why is there a fire in the backyard, so to speak? And they're like, he goes, you guys need to, you guys need to figure this out. He goes, you need to put this fire out right now. I don't care how you do it. You get trash cans, whatever, fill them up in the shower, whatever you got to do, you need to put this fire out. So the fire gets put out and then it's probably maybe like an hour later, um, it gets relit this this time is larger um in fact this time the uh the couch is on fire and guy comes back and at this point in time the the uh, the fire department's called and so i'm on like the third floor and and i'm looking at this and i'm like dude this this is not good and the next thing you know one of my buddies um comes up and the firefighters are there and they're like, he, my buddy goes, I don't know why you're here. If we wanted that fire out, we'd piss on it and put it out. He goes, we want that fire lit. And uh, so at this point in time, like basically things are pretty well canceled at this point. Um, and uh, paddle party over. The paddle party is over. And, uh, and so, you know, the Sergeant Major is called he shows up and this is like 10 11 o'clock at night and he goes everybody in the barracks get the f out here right now and get in formation and so we're like all right you know so we're standing there um yada 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 like things are going on and he goes now the let me say this the rules for the barracks in regards to alcohol you Mm -hmm. were allowed one bottle of wine or one six pack no liquor was allowed. Okay. Okay. He goes, now it's my understanding you boys wanted to have a paddle party up here tonight. He goes, well, we're going room to room. Let me find alcohol in these rooms more than a six pack. Let me find that. He goes, we're also going through with the fire department and we're getting, we're getting fingerprints off the off the stuff from the fire back there and, and we're running it we're gonna figure out who's in charge and who who orchestrated all this and so you know we're sitting out there standing out there and it's literally probably close to midnight one in the morning at this point and everyone knows we're like dude this, this, there's gonna be no like no it's just a show like, no no it's just it's just a way for you to kind of entice us to like tell us you know tell you like who's right. involved here so you know like like good marines um no one says a word. And right. then, uh, yeah. So everything then is just, he goes, you guys, you're, you're done. Um, just go to bed, got formation in the morning. And so Friday is, is always like in the Marine Corps Friday is always a battalion or larger level, level formation. 
So now the, the, the battalion commander has been briefed on all this. And this is all my paddle party, right? But no one like knows it's me. Um, they just know like there's there's going to be a paddle party. And so the battalion commander we thought was going to be pissed. Um, but uh, he turns out like being really cool about it. He goes, heard you guys wanted to have a good time last night. He goes, that's good. He goes, I'm, I'm okay with that. Because you know what? Come tomorrow, we got work to do. So he's like, I'm glad you guys got it out of your system. Like, I didn't even really care. And so, you know, at that point in time, you know, um, you know, the guy, guys I was with, um, you know, really nothing went on Friday, you know, day before we leave or they left. And so Saturday, they all leave. And then um, kind of within, within a matter of a couple of weeks, about a month, um, things, things got pretty real. Um, mm. A couple of my buddies, a uh, uh, guy by the name of Corey uh, Palmer, who I went to sniper school with, uh, he was in our unit, deployed with him the first time, uh, his vehicle gets hit with an IED. Um, and some of the, the tactics that, that the insurgents would use with their IEDs, they, they changed um, throughout the, uh, um, the course of Iraq or throughout, through the duration. Um, you know, they went from just simply using explosives to using explosives with an accelerant. And so a lot of times we would put gasoline in the, um, um, uh, with, with the explosive, like in a container, say a two liter bottle or something along those lines. Okay. Um, and what that would do is because at that point in time, like in the early phases of, our, of Iraq, I'm sure like certain, some people will remember, dude, we were driving around Humvees that were like convertibles, no tops on them, no armor. Uh, and that, that created a lot of hysteria and a lot of attention with, with Americans. They're like, dude, what, what is going on? We've sent these guys over there and we're literally having police departments send like old flak jackets and old bulletproof vest as a means of armor. Um, some of our, the deployment I was on, um, we literally had flak, old flak jackets, um, old Kevlar vest lining the floors of the Humvees because of the risk that IEDs had um and it would be like the shrapnel once the id went off from underneath the vehicle um and then we would also have um i or uh, kevlar vest on like the door panels as well um to protect from um shrapnel from blast from the side and so be, and then as, as iraq went on we had what we call up armor vehicles and then um there's another device or another vehicle made by oshkosh it was called an mrad um, which is basically a very up-armored uh, vehicle. And so either way, they, to exploit those weaknesses, though, we always had a gunner. And so what the gunner, he would be the guy manning the gun on top of the roof. Well, he's exposed, even though like we would have metal steel wrapped around him to protect him, it would still be an opening. So what they did was they would use these accelerants with their IEDs that would create a very big fireball. And mm -hmm. so that fireball would go off, it would, it would hit the gunner, and then it would just uh, go out through the vehicle. So it would fill the vehicle with a huge ball of, of fire um, mm -hmm. that would lead to very serious burns with yeah. people. Uh, pretty, pretty catastrophic deal. So either way, um, you know, like I said, just roughly five weeks into this seven-month deployment again, uh, my buddy's vehicle gets hit. Um, this was hit on May 1st and um, 
everybody in that vehicle died and um at, at different times um Corey, uh uh died um on his way back to the states uh on the 6th of may and then alex carbonero died on the 10th and then um brad falks died on the 18th and so kind of what what's ironic you know with with johnny and what johnny used to do was and i always tell people about the burn center in texas right um mm -hmm. military guys and whatnot when, when, when they go back and they're like, hey, so-and-so, they're going to the burn center in Texas. Well, the burn center is the Institute of Surgical Research at BAMC. Right. And um, so Corey- Which was, is just across the street from CFI. Just, ju right, just, right just across, across the street, street from yep. CFI. And, and, and those guys work so much, so closely with, with, with one another. Yeah. And um, so the way that evacuations work from in theater would be you, you, you leave Iraq, um, once you're medically stabilized and able to do so from there, you go to Germany, um, you, either you're managed in Germany and then you'll, you'll fly back or whatever, or we get you stabilized in Germany for a much longer flight back to the States. Largely guys were either going to Walter Reed or they were going to, um, uh, Texas and Corey was on his, on, on the flight to, to, to the Institute of Surgical Research and, and died on the flight. And so, you know, um, it, it was, it was those guys, um, and it's a pretty, pretty tragic loss, um, knowing that you're so close, but yet so far away, uh, when he died, it was literally four days before his 22nd birthday. Mm -hmm. And that, that's the other thing too, that, I, that I would say, um, a large percentage of these guys that are dying specifically in Iraq and Afghanistan, I'm, I'm sure it would hold true in world war II as well. Um, but I just know specifically in Iraq and Afghanistan, these guys that are dying are young. Um, and, and they, they have had a, 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 they have a lot of life that have, has been left on the table. I would say they live their life to the most fullest extent that they can. Um, and they have no regrets from that. But if you look at, you know, basically, how we look and cherish life. They had a lot of life left, um, but they were willing to sacrifice that um, for, for the greater good. Um, so, uh, you know, in overall, in, in that deployment, there were nine operators that died um, from my unit in, in that second deployment. Um, and largely that came in the months of May and June of, of 2006. So, um, but yeah, that, that would, you know, those are the, the, the folks I personally, um, you know, know that have, have passed and, and, you know, yeah. folks that I think about on a regular basis, um, you know, that, that, that died and paid that sacrifice so, so that we have the, the freedoms that, that we so enjoy and love. Yeah. Um, you know, well, I think it, I think it's cool. I appreciate you telling us these stories for sure. And I think, too, when I, when I think about Memorial Day, um, I think those stories are so important, but I think there's more to it than that because it's, you know, living with having lost those guys for you, um, their families, um, and, and all the other garbage that you see, you know, in war. I mean, I think back um, just on my life and haven't had two grandfathers um, both serve during World War II and, and looking back and just thinking, you know, how, 
how different our lives were simply because of that. You know, I, I had two grandfathers that were not emotionally available, um, were very rough around the edges. And, and growing up as a kid, you think, ah, oh, these are just salty old guys, you know? Um, and, and at some level you kind of have an appreciation for <laughs> cranky, cranky old, old dudes. Um, Cause you grew up with a couple of the, you know, you, you fished with and you hunted with and that kind of thing. But, but in hearing, you know, I, I think one thing that is, is kind of unique for you, Zach, is that you're, you're willing to talk about this stuff. Um, and a lot of people aren't, um, aren't, aren't, aren't willing or just simply aren't able. And I think in the case of some folks that have seen life lost, have been close to people that have died in combat, um, it's a very hard thing to talk about. And I don't think the, the pain of that goes away, really. You just kind of live with it in different, in different ways. You know, for my grandfather, at least one, the only story that I know, because in, in leading up to this, I asked my dad, my uncles, my cousins, you know, do, do they know any, any stories that, that I could tell, you know, from, from way back when, you know, and, and the only story that, that's out there is my, my uncle, who a lot of people that have taken our, our course have seen a picture of him because he was um, a bullpen catcher for the Astros for, for 36 years since my, my devotion to the Houston Astros. Um, and, and, and then my grandfather, um, was a Marine, never saw combat, but he was um, in the Philippines and a plane came in that the navigator was flying. And basically the navigator said to the, the person in the, in the air control tower who was telling them, look, you can't land, you can't land. And the navigator's like, dude, I'm the only person alive on this plane. I'm landing this plane. Yeah. Um, and so my grandfather, he got to help unload all of the dead Marines, army service member, you know, Navy personnel, whomever it was from that plane. And, and my uncle one time asked him, he said, you know, pop, you don't get like, I don't see you get mad about stuff. I don't see you cry about anything. He goes, and he's like, my, my uncle is like, I'm an emotional wreck about some of this stuff as I mean, and I'm getting emotional just talking to you about some of this junk. Um, you know, and he said to my grandfather, he's like, I don't understand how you're so tough about this stuff and my grandfather said it just looked him straight in the eye and he was like he basically told him that story and he was like son I he goes I I can still smell those bodies he's like I he goes no, I can't imagine anything worse than having to unload these people that that I served with um that died yeah for our country so so I, I think that you know, the pain kind of lives on in so many different ways. And so, excuse me, I get, yeah. I get upset talking about it. So, yeah, it's, um, it, it, it's tough for sure. Um, you know, you, you sit there and, and like I said, I think earlier on is you, um, you, you try to not just think about the moments that uh, of the event that, that took someone's life but you think about all the other things with them, um, you know, and, and I would say that that, that, that kind of helps, um, you know, and, and go from there, but, you know, definitely Memorial day is, is different, um, for, for folks that have lost someone. Um, and, um, you know, um, but yeah. And then, you know, the, one of the other, um, things that I just, or one of the other stories 
that that I, I think is is really important. You know, back to you know what we were originally saying was you know getting the stories out there with people and people who have, mm-hmm. have done very heroic things, but they just they just don't they're just not really recognized. Um, and this is I, I don't know how popular of a story, um, but uh, it, it happened in 2008 in Ramadi, and so Ramadi second to Fallujah was was a very, um, was a very tough war zone. Um, a lot of, a lot of guys, uh, major fighting after Fallujah occurred in Ramadi. Um, and that was kind of like the, the big fighting for the Al-Ambar province once Fallujah was kind of taken care of. And, um, the, the story is, is told via, uh, General Kelly. Um, and, the, the name of the speech that, that he talks about it from is, is called Six Seconds to Live. And, you know, what happened that, that led up to this was you have two units that are on the verge of, or they're, they're swapping out. And so whenever we do a swap out of, of units overseas, you, you have a bit of overlap. So within that overlap, you basically have the leaders, the commanders of those two units are discussing you know, the battlefield, so to speak, things that, you know, the, the incoming group needs to be aware of and whatnot. And then you go on um, ride along type patrols. And then, you know, basically there's a, there's a handoff. And so uh, what, what was going on in Ramadi, uh, this, this kind of happened uh, in a- April 22nd of 2008, you, you have two infantry units. It was uh, one nine and then two eight, one nine was coming in. And so when, when we use like numbers like that in the, in the Marine Corps, what that means is it's first battalion, ninth Marine regiment and second battalion, eighth Marine regiment. The, the one nine has a pretty notorious history. They're, they're called the walking dead and they're called the walking dead because of um, they have the highest mortality rate of any Marine Corps unit. And that was sustained in Vietnam. Um, so yeah. Um, leading up to, um, you know, kind of modern day, so to speak, nine or uh, one nine was or ninth Marines was stood down, meaning they disbanded ninth Marines. Uh, leading up to the troop surge in Iraq that happened in 2007, they restood up one nine, or stood up ninth Marine Regiment. And so now one nine is on their first deployment. Um, one of the Marines um, that and so let me back up. So they, they go on this deployment and they literally just got in country and they're staying at this compound. And so how security works in these compounds is Marines, if, if you're on a Marine base, Marines provide the security. They provide security for their own people. And so they had they have two guys on watch at the entrance to this compound. And then they have like what's called Jersey walls or T barriers. There's the concrete barriers that you see on, on the interstate and whatnot, uh, like the median. Um, they have those set up in a serpentine. So basically someone doesn't have a straight shot at charging, running a vehicle into the compound. And so uh, you, you have uh, two, two Marines that are tasked with now taking over the security. So you have a, a change in security. One of which is uh, Lance Corporal Jordan Harder from uh, 1-9. And then you have Jonathan Yale from 2-8. Um, the, these Marines, uh, Harder was 20 years old and Yale was 22 years old. So again, 
two very young Marines, more than likely on their first, definitely Harder was on his first deployment. Yale, um, I, I believe was on his first, uh, well, his first term, his first enlistment. Um, and again, you know, just kind of within the Marine Corps, you're considered a boot until you go on deployment. So a boot is a newbie. And so uh, you're, you're, you're just a, you're a boot. And so what that also entails is whenever there's um, work duties, things like that, you're the guy who does those. The, 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 ju- <laughs> the junior guy does that. Like it, yeah. it's a hierarchy. You right? gotta pay your dues. Yeah, that's right. You, you pay your dues. Yeah. So harder gets basically picked from one nine to man the post Yale from two eight, the outgoing unit. They're like, you know, basically they pick him. And so from there, it's, you know, the, the standing deal, um, you have general orders in the Marine Corps. Um, one of the general orders is basically to man to post, do not allow anyone to pass without proper identification and proper reason. Um, so they're standing posts relatively shortly after they assume the post, um, you know, they have some Iraqis that surround them within this compound, there was 50 Marines and a hundred Iraqi police officers. So 150 men in this compound. And shortly after they assume post, um, there's a blue truck, a large blue truck that turns down the street. Um, it starts weaving in and out of the serpentine, or, you know, start, starts to navigate these Jersey walls. Um, and it starts picking up steam. At this point in time, you know, the Iraqis, begin to figure out like what's going on. And so Harder and Yale start opening up fire. Um, once, once this happens, uh, they, they start uh, based off of security cam footage. Um, you know, the, the vehicle turns down the street about a second late. You figure you have about a second to process like what's going on. Like what is actually this individual doing? They're navigating it. Then they start picking up steam. So you kind of have an idea of what's going on. At point in time, you pick up your rifle. We'll say that takes another one to two seconds. So now we're three seconds into this. Um, from then on, for two seconds, based off security cam footage, these guys are, are unloading. The Iraqis have already started to run. And so the Iraqis that are there, they know what's going on. They start running away to basically find um, cover. They're basically like this, this truck is a, is a bomb. They, they, they know. And yeah. so Harder and Yale continue firing. They fire for, you know, another two seconds. At this point in time, the truck, uh, they, they basically killed the driver. Um, the truck comes to a rest right in front of them. A second later, the, the bomb goes off. Um, it was a relatively large bomb based off EOD assessment. They, they, they estimated the bomb was about two ton in size. Um, it was so massive that it destroyed 24 brick masonry buildings um, in the area. There was a mosque that was 100 meters away that was destroyed. Um, mm. And so um, what's, uh, what, what's kind of ironic then is so given what happened, uh, and, and again, you take a look at this scenario, mind you, there's only two, two people who died in this instance. Mm-hmm. It was Harder and Yale. They saved the lives of 150 individuals and sacrificed their own life. They they never once wavered. They 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 didn't they didn't go to hide. They didn't run away. No, they shouldered rifles, leaned into it, 
and rained hate downrange on this individual to save the individuals that were behind them. And so um, from there, they, they interviewed uh, um, General Kelly, went to Ramadi and he interviewed um, you know, the, the, the Iraqi police because they were the only ones who saw what was going on. Um, and all the stories were, were consistent across the board with everyone he, he interviewed. Um, they, they, once the truck made the turn down the street, they knew what was going on. They, they knew what it was. It started picking up steam. Um, and, and so, um, the Iraqis, they, they began to fire but relatively quickly. They're like, dude, this, this guy, he's not stopping. We need to run. And so they ran for cover and they did so, so they, so that they could live. Uh, and, and they did. Um, and then, um, one of the, um, one of the other, uh, individuals that was interviewed from by general Kelly, you know, said that, uh, that they ran from the danger, like any normal man would, um, to save their own life. But he didn't realize until at that point that, uh, that Marines aren't normal. No sane man would have stayed there and did what they did. They saved the rest of us. Um, and, uh, that's, that's what they do. Uh, you know, we, we have a job, we have a duty and, whether that duty is to protect the flag and what that flag stands for to protect America and what America stands for or protect our brothers and sisters. That's what we will do. Um, and, and again, the, the oath that is taken when, when we take that oath um, to defend the constitution, uh, we, we do so. Um, and, and we write a blank check to the, to the government and to the American people with a value up to and including our lives. And, um, you know, the, the individuals that we talk about today and those, those folks that, um, you know, that we're going to celebrate on Memorial Day, that check was cashed in and that, and that, that, that the cost was their life. So, yeah. Yeah. Good stuff, man. Yeah. Well, I don't know how, how you conclude, um, a podcast like this. Um, uh, that's a, that's a pretty good story to end on for sure. Um, and you know, I think, I, you know, I would like to say thanks. Excuse me. Um, for taking the time for, for, for writing that check. Yeah. Those, those guys, that, that's it, man. That, that's what it is, you know? Um, and, and I really think I, I may be biased in my, my experience, um, but what makes America great and, and, and what it is today is because people that paid the sacrifice um, and yeah. people going forward who will voluntarily be willing to die so that we can enjoy the freedoms that we enjoy. Um, it, it, it's a very amazing thing. Um, and, and that's really what makes America as great as it is. Um, we have people, um, my friends and, and folks that I don't know, they're willing to die for people that they don't even know. And the people that they don't even know, they will never know the names of Jordan Harder. They will never know Jonathan Yale, Javier Oblice, Corey Palmer. They, they won't know those names, but, but we're willing to do that. And that's what makes us great. Yeah, yeah, I'll know the names now. So, yeah. Okay, this is going to conclude 
episode one in the three pack of episodes we are releasing on Memorial Day. This particular episode, we will conclude with the playing of Taps. When we were putting this together, that was um, something that Zach said he felt like would be a good way to to finish the podcast. So we're gonna we're gonna finish this episode with the playing of Taps. I hope you'll stay on and listen. <laughs> 